This podcast is brought to you by nbs.fm, the no bullshit podcast network. Hey guys, Adam here. Welcome to today's episode of Startup Diary Podcast, where I have the pleasure of interviewing Dan Cooperl from Advisor Architect. Me and Dan go into three core topics here I think you're going to enjoy. One is having a profit first mindset. Two is about systems and processes in your business and how you need them in order to scale. And three, Dan has moved from being an expert financial advisor into running a information slash service business where he's productized his experience into seven stages. If you are trading time for money and want to leverage that into bigger products and services, this is the show for you. Enjoy. Dan Cooperl is author of several books, most notably Advisor Architect, Building the Practice You've Always Wanted, and Renegade Advisor, Surviving in the Age of Amazon. His firm, Advisor Architect, teaches advisors the power of systems to transition from what he calls a crappy sales job to becoming a real entrepreneur and owning a major profit center. A financial advisor himself, Dan's fee-based firm, Money & Clarity, manages close to $200 million in assets for clients in 20 states, all while he resides some 300 miles away from his office. Now, please enjoy this interview with Adam Adam Callow and Dan Cooperl. Dan, thanks so much for joining us on the Startup Diary podcast today. How are you? I'm doing great, Adam. How are you? I'm really good. Uh, I always ask every guest, whereabouts are you joining us from the world today, Dan? So I'm in what we call flyover country in the United States, uh, Cincinnati, Ohio. <laughs> Very nice. Yeah, you uh, fly over it on, the, on your way to places you want to go to. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the only reason that I ever first learned about Ohio is, I believe this is still correct but uh, bicycle playing cards do you know that yeah company? yeah are they out of ohio is that i didn't even know uh, yeah i believe were... they're out of ohio i used to spend my childhood with a deck of playing cards and i believe it said made in ohio at the bottom just as as we jumped on this call i was thinking i know i know ohio from somewhere and that's where it comes from they they make the cards that i spent my childhood learning magic with but we won't go down that i used to <laughs> t- table to table magic as a uh, as a kid trying to earn some pocket money dan i want to jump straight into it because we yeah we had absolutely a, we had a quick chat before we jumped on the mics and you said two things to me, which I've noted down, which Mm -hmm. um, sort of tie into where I want to take this podcast. So firstly, you said systems are essential uh, for any business. And I'm ashamed to say that we're seven years into our business, Dan, and I'm only just starting to build the right systems and processes because I keep hitting this ceiling in our business and not able to scale any further. Could you just elaborate on the importance of systems in business? um, Yeah. And then we can just uh, un- unpackage that and then go into a couple more topics. I want to use your Sure, absolutely. Well, let, let's start off with the term entrepreneur. A lot of people like to use that term as synonymous with being a small business owner. And I go back to Michael Gerber's definition, which if you haven't read Michael Gerber's book, The E-Myth, it's been around now for well over 30 years. Every small business owner should read it every single year. And Gerber said, look, you're not an entrepreneur until you're working on your business rather than in your business. He said, if you're a baker and you're baking the bread every day, you're not an entrepreneur. Now, the day you teach somebody else how to bake the bread almost as good as you do so that you can then focus on opening up your next bakery, now you're moving to that point of where you're being an entrepreneur. You're no longer a key component of the system. You're actually non-essential for the day-to-day. And that was something that really spoke to me 30 years ago when I read that book. So when I started my own business, that was key. Now, I couldn't get there overnight. I mean, most small business owners, when they get started, it's just them. They're wearing all the hats. But it's something that you have to strive to because, you know, even though like today I'm in Cincinnati, Ohio, I actually live in Nashville, Tennessee, which is 300 miles away. 
How do I do that? Because I have a systems-based practice that doesn't require my presence. I've got three people running the system for me. Now, I had to create it. I have to observe how well they're running it. But if you think, for example, like McDonald's, usually no matter where you go in the world, the French fries and McDonald's will taste almost exactly the same. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, because there's a very specific system in place. They don't just wing it at each restaurant. There's a very specific system as to how long they're in the fryer, what oil to use, when do you actually throw them away because they've started to get soggy, et cetera. So for me, I wanted to get to that point where I could own a business but not be required to run it the day-to-day. -day. I didn't feel that I had to sell the business in order to get back my worth. I wanted a business that would continue to provide me revenue, even though I wasn't going to be there day to day to actually do the things. I'm observing them, but I'm not doing them. And that's what it's all about. And that's where so many small business owners lack because they see themselves as so essential to everything that they never let go. And that's why they can't scale because they can't scale themselves. They can't clone themselves. Dan, that, that last comment sort of resonates with me because I guess there's ego as well involved, you know, uh, oh, yeah. because we, uh, when we start a business, we, we believe we're building something and it's just mm -hmm. us that can make it work. Yeah. And there's, there's fear letting go of responsibility in something that you've built. What was it in your journey that made you say, hey, I want to get back some of my time. How do yeah. I work myself out the business to work on the business instead of in yeah. the business? What was that like? Well, moment and talk to me about some of the things that you struggled with that some of our listeners might be able to learn from. Well, really, the necessity came when, you know, I started having a family and I started to realize that it was, I had to make a choice. I had to make a choice between them or the business. And I, I, years ago, I had heard this story. It's a great story. It's about an attorney who was diagnosed with a very serious illness, but he could recover, but he was going to have to dramatically reduce his stress level and he was going to have to dramatically reduce his work schedule. So what he decided to do was set up his, his law practice that he only had to work three days a week. Now, at the end of that year, his, his revenue doubled from the prior year. And he realized that when it was all over, what a shame that he had to actually wait for his health to fail before he did it. So in my case, as my son started getting a little bit more involved in things, I wanted to be present. And I realized that it didn't really have to be either or. I didn't have to sacrifice my business. I just needed to move it in that direction. I do it purely for lifestyle. Now, you talked about ego, and that's a key point. What you have to understand is, in your mind, nobody will do it as good as you will. No. Now, in reality, they probably will. You just won't want to admit it. But I have found people that can do everything that I do better. Other than maybe explaining a few things in general, there's a lot of talent out there. So the day that I decided that having free time and, quite frankly, more money was a higher priority than me having my, my stamp of approval on everything – that was the day it became very easy to start delegating things away. I think that's a really interesting comment. Uh, and you, you said it in when you first spoke about the e-myth and you were speaking about the baker, you said about the process and you said, I, I made a quick note and it said, well, you can teach someone to bake nearly as, oh, good, nearly as, as good as you. Nearly right. as good as you. Right. That's, I guess that's something that I struggle with personally. It's like, I want it done to my standard exactly. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. don't think anyone can get there. How have you found training people up to follow your process and systems? Like what was the, how, how do you yeah. find finding the right people, educating the right people? And then I guess, how do you actually let go 
Mm-hmm. And I made another word. You you said observe. Well, what did right. you mean? What do you mean by that? What does that training and onboarding process look like to the point that you can step back? Yeah. Well, let's let's back up just a little bit because when you're building the system, it's very important that you take thorough inventory of everything that's involved. Now, very often when we're looking at what we do, and if you look at it from afar, you'll start to notice you're doing some things that, quite frankly, don't even make a whole lot of sense. It's like, why are we doing it that way? Um, in my line of work, financial services, we have to be good documenters. But I've seen people where their documentation is so over the top that very little work gets done. And the reality is it doesn't have to be. At the end of the day, you just need one level of documentation. Um, so what you have to first do is take inventory of everybody's activities, and then you have to ask yourself, does this make sense? Is this the logical way to do it? Now, once you do that, then you're literally just writing it down in bullet form. You do this, you do that, you do this. Now, this is key because you talk about getting the right people. If you don't have a systematized practice for your business and your key people leave you, maybe they leave for more money, maybe they die, maybe they just retire, whatever, you're in serious trouble. But if you have it documented, you could literally go to the next person and say, okay, here are the steps. Here's what you do. It's laid out here. This is one, this is two, this is three. And you have to make sure that if you build this system that you're actually following that system. That's another mistake people make this is to say, well, I have systems and then they, they never follow through with that procedure. So step one in terms of having the right person is making sure that you've got somebody who can, well, actually, let me back up a second. Step one is to make sure that you've spelled out exactly what it is that they need to do. I hear the horror stories all the time about people getting hired and not getting trained. So that's on us as the business owner. If we have success of an employee, a lot of that is because we took the time to properly prepare them. When that employee fails, not all, but a lot of the times it's because we failed to give them the right instruction. All right. So the first thing is you've got to be very clear about what it is they're going to do and how are they going to do it. As far as finding the right person, I'll be honest with you, I've made as many mistakes as everybody else has made. All right. What I'm ultimately looking for when I hire is for them to give me stories, give me examples of where they had to deal with difficult people, where they had to think of a problem, they had to solve it on their own, where they acted without the constant permission of their boss, where they showed some initiative. I'm always looking for those examples. Uh, It is a little bit of of a trial and error, but I will tell you this, when you get that right person, don't ever lose that person because of money. That's the silliest reason to ever lose a quality employee. You know, I tell business owners all the time, I say, look, to you, $5,000 isn't that much money. To them, it is. So if giving that person more and maybe has them at the higher end of their, of their pay scale, keeps them there and keeps them happy, do it. Because as soon as you lose that person, it's the most expensive thing in the world you can do to go out and find a new person. And money is the one resource which is so easily replaced. So many other resources you can't. Money, money's abundant. Dan, you sort of like teed me up for a perfect segue there because I think one of the other things that we discussed is all about profit. People, yeah. people in our space, um, from an entrepreneurship and a startup perspective, a lot of the people that I know in my world, uh, because I've raised a bit of seed funding, raised some venture capital, and then as people listen to this podcast, they'll know I, I kind of stepped off the venture capital treadmill about three years ago. We, yeah. we had opportunities to continue to raise, but I wanted to get the unit economics right in my business so then I could choose the future of what we do. Yeah, You, you speak uh, very highly about the importance of profitability and profit goals. Yeah. Could you just share with me, uh, I guess, 
the importance of profit goals for small businesses uh, and unpackage that a little bit? Well, it, you know, it, it's funny. I mean, if we really think about it, at the end of the day, that's all that really matters is are you profitable? And yet when we're growing, we tend to get so enamored with the appearance of success, which is what revenue, which is what debt can give you and give mm-hmm. you the appearance for success. But eventually that, that runs out. So even if you're using venture capital money, you know, eventually that runs out if you don't perform, if you don't start generating profit. When it comes to small business owners, one of the biggest mistakes I see is they, they have this mindset that they're going to dig themselves into a very big hole and then someday there's going to be a huge payoff. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that does happen. Most of the time, though, it does not. And what you need to do is you need to treat profitability like a line item in your budget. So just like you have a line item for rent and you might have a line item for employee salary, you have to have a line item for profit. So when you've got, let's just use a hypothetical. Let's say you have a business that has a revenue of a million dollars a year. Then what I would say is, look, most things in life, you can lose 10% of it and really not miss it. So instead of a million dollars, we're going to make it 900000 Now, what you have to do as, as the owner of that business is figure out how to run the rest of that operation successfully with $900,000. And you can do it, but you have to plan the year that way. Too often, business owners see profit as just the end result. Oh, look, I got a profit. Now, now anyone who achieves great things in life, like an athlete, they're not surprised they had that success. Mm-hmm. They worked very hard to get to that point you know, they're happy, but are they shocked? No, they're not shocked at all. That they, in fact, if they were shocked, they probably wouldn't have been able to succeed in the first place. It's the same thing with profitability. You have to begin the year and say, okay, this is an amount of money. So here I'm in the US, I'm going to use dollars. We're going to, I'm going to have a hundred thousand dollars made in profit at the end of the year. And that's 10% of revenue. Therefore, every time I get paid by anybody, 10% will immediately leave the business and go into it profit account. Now I can keep that account in cash if I want, because I can tap into it later if I really needed to, but I'm going to force myself to operate on just 90%. The, the, the dirty little secret is that that 10% in this hypothetical is usually not needed. It's usually wasted. Too many times business owners see that extra cash building up in their business account. And what do they do? They go out and hire another person or they go out and buy machinery that they don't even need. Why? Because they have the money. And again, when's the payoff going to come? And then all they respond with, well, someday it will. Well, no, forget that. In fact, if you have to rely on the sale of your business in order for you to really make money, you're rolling dice, my friend. You are much better off building up your own wealth with the revenue that's coming in. And still, maybe someday you can sell it for money. In fact, I'll tell you this. If you can run a systems-based business where you are not essential, that business is worth far more than if you are essential. Yeah, they're the, they're the, they were the two things, Dan, that, that when we were speaking that they they felt, when we were talking about them, they felt like separate points of conversation, but they're so tightly coupled together. So in yeah. terms of if you can run a system-based business um, and then if you are looking for an exit in the future. So our network and our community in the business that I run are plumbers, heating engineers, electricians, and the way they see their small business is I'm on the tools and I'm working for an hourly rate. As yeah. soon as I retire... I hang the tools up and I close my business down. And the education piece that we're trying to go through is, hey, you're building up an asset, you're building up a customer base. If you can actually build some productized services in your business, yeah. order services, put people on subscription plans, you're building a sellable asset. 
I then reverse engineer some of that with our customers. And it's one of the products and services that we do here in terms of trying to help people set these profit goals. How do you, how do you go through this exercise with your clients to say, someone might say my profit is a byproduct of the work I do this year to right. your point. How do you get someone to think 12 months ahead and reverse engineer back if they don't know what, what they should be making? Because yeah. most, most people that we speak to, they, especially from the, the one to three man company size is they, they think their salary and their, their money is the same as profit in the business. Yeah, and, no, and it, 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 it's those two it's things. Not. Yeah. In fact, when I say profit, I mean money that you make that you don't need. So you don't need it to run your household or anything like that. All right. Well, I'm just going to speak to my world, which is the financial advisor mm -hmm. world, because we do operate with, with rather large margins. And typically, you will hear financial advisors talk about, well, you know, I'm running with a 35% margin, which includes what they're bringing home in salary. But in reality, I have a rather large practice. We run it with a 60% profit margin, and that's totally by design. So when we go into the year, I know I'm going to spend 40% to run the business and I'm therefore saying to myself, okay, fine. What are the things that are essential to this business? And you know, essential doesn't really, is not that long a list. There are a lot of things that we have that are nice, but they're not essential. So staffing is a great example. Too often people will just add people. And when you really look at all the tasks that are involved in a lot of cases, if you have four employees, like a financial planning firm, you really got four people doing part-time work. One person could do the work of all of them. So I always say first, look at the most profitable business in your sector. What is a reasonable profit margin? And, and be careful because what the industry will tell you is the norm, like mine, 35%, it's not. I mean, if that's average, we all know that average really isn't all that good. Mm -hmm. That, you know, you can work harder to be above average. Now, when you have things like cost of goods sold and stuff like that, which we do not have in, in our industry, that obviously is going to have to be factored into it. But usually, like when an advisor comes to see me, the first thing they'll tell me when I ask them where they want to take their business is they will give me a revenue number. And I say, forget that. How much money at the end of the day would you want for you that you would basically show on your taxes or forget tax planning for a second, but what, how much is just for you? And when they tell me that number, very often they can hit that number right now. We just have to change how they're operating their business. Now, sometimes that does mean you're not going to go with a staff of four. You're going to go with a staff of two. Sometimes it means we're going to evaluate some of your bad marketing and we're going to get rid of it. But by thinking terms of the amount of money that you want, you then work backwards from there. So no matter what industry it is, at the end of the day, I'd say, okay, how much do you want for yourself to live on? How much would you like to invest into your own, say, your own portfolio? And now let's start pricing your goods and services from there. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, and I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight. But what I am saying is that it's going to happen if you set it as your goal. Again, it's just going to be like a great athlete. The first time they play the sport, they're not very good. But they work at it, and they work at it, and they work at it, and they have a plan. And then eventually they hit it. And when they hit that mark, they're the least are surprised. Yeah, I think it's good advice. I think one thing that we're trying to understand, just as, as a side note, is this benchmark of profitability in, mm -hmm. in our industry. Um, yeah. We're kind of struggling to find that number, but I, I guess there's places out there that we can go and look. Well, yeah. And look, sometimes you've got to set that benchmark yourself. Seriously, sometimes you have to say, all right, look, these are the essential expenses. Mm -hmm. If I don't have these, I don't have the business. All right. So I, I think about it again, financial planning world. You know, I'll, I'll give you an office and I'll give you the internet 
and I'll give you some computers. I'll even give you one staff person. Beyond that, you know, you got a few, you got a few regulatory licensing fees you got to pay and stuff like that. But beyond that, it's not that bad. And so many businesses just assume that overhead has to be a certain number. And I'm just saying challenge that. You know, is it, is it more effective for you to keep your inventory or is it better to make it in time? I don't know. These are the types of exercises. Because I'll tell you this, it's a lot easier to hit a profitability goal by cutting wasted expense than it is to go out and find a new client. And too often, all we think about is getting that next new client to solve all our problems. And I'm like, look, go get that next new client. But why don't we do it after you're certain that you're going to increase the amount of profitability that new client is going to bring? I've heard people say, and I think this is very sad, like again, in my business, they'll say, you know, the second hundred million that I got to manage isn't nearly as profitable as the first hundred million. I said, that's a problem because the second hundred million should be a lot more profitable. You should already have the things in place so that you can spread it out. That's what we mean by scaling. But we see it all the time because, again, we're not thinking about it. We're just thinking in terms of hitting this revenue goal, this sales goal. And at the end of the day, look, I know a lot of people who live the life of millionaires. They are broke millionaires. They are one bad month away from closing. In fact, COVID will be the ultimate determiner at the end who was truly running a profit-based business and who wasn't, sadly. This is, uh, this is Darwinism at its best right now. Yeah, oh, it is. Of, yeah, the, uh... it is. <laughs> and you know what? It's so unpredictable. I mean, seriously, if you'd sat in a room two, three years ago with people and say, okay, what could happen that could really throw the economic? We'd always think in terms of economic things, right? Yeah. This is kind of like a meteor hitting. Mm-hmm. And um, so this is going to ultimately determine who, who is going to be able to survive based on that. And you're right, it is Darwinian, which is why it's a great business opportunity for those out there who are willing to stay strong, stay brave. And look, maybe you weren't fully prepared for this, but you know what? There'll be another crisis coming down the pike. You know, I'm 57 years old. I've seen a lot of them and each one is different. But at the end of the day, the, the strong do survive and you want to be prepared for it. Listeners of the show know that um, I, I, as a as a venture back business, three years ago, we were always continually pushed to scale, move the numbers mm-hmm. up and to the right, and ignore profitability and go for yeah. land grab. And I've documented on this podcast of the last couple of years that I've pushed back heavily against that, and that's probably the sole reason we've been able to manage through this crisis this year because we Good built up, we built up some cash reserves, and I thought we were running the business in a lean way. The last 120, 150 days every single line item has been scrutinized. And to your point, when there's no new business to go and win, there's still an opportunity to increase profitability because you just start cutting the fat in the business and you get really lean. I guess yeah. if, you, if for the guys listening to this right now, I would say when the market picks back up, whether it's three months, 12 months or 24 months time, don't get fat and fluffy again. Stay as lean as you are now because that's where uh, you get those margins. Yeah, no, I think, that's, I think that's great advice. Now, I also want to point out too, look, I'm not anti-marketing and I'm not anti-growth. What mm-hmm. I do want to emphasize, though, again, to small businesses is you need to know who your, who your repeat customers are because those are the ones that should have been helping you during this, this period. I, I have a podcast where I talk to small business owners in Cincinnati about what it is that they're doing to, to get over it. And the ones who actually knew who their customers were, you take like a restaurant, for example, those who actually knew who their customers were when they could no longer have people come in they were able to reach out to those people. Mm -hmm. They were able to say, you know what? I know you like the veal. We're going to have it on special for carry out this week. 
recurring revenue is so key to profitability. And too often we, we forget that or we ignore it altogether. So whatever business that you're in, think of a way in which you can get recur, even if it's a, a modest amount of money, that you can get recurring revenue from your client base. Some cases they'd have to keep buying stuff. Other places, it could be like a club that you could form, some type of membership. If you can do that, you're going to find yourself weathering these storms a lot better because that's reliable income. I think it's great advice. And, and people that look at, if you take a plumber as an example, um, mm-hmm. we, we built up, and it's a very, very small payment plan. Yeah. Uh, and it's eight pounds, a, eight pounds, so call it $10 a month. Yeah. Uh, and that gets you one boiler service a year. But what it does, it creates this ongoing relationship. And then anything else that's needed in the house, they go, I've got a relationship with this guy or this woman, this female plumber, this male plumber. Yeah. I'm going to call him up or her up and then get the work done. It creates that compared it's, to open it's, up the It's a brilliant idea because the last thing somebody wants is for something like that to go wrong and have no idea what to do next. So yeah, no, that, that, that's a, and that just shows you, you know, most people would think, well, how the heck could a plumber have recurring revenue? We're not saying it's going to be a lot, but it is going to be enough that, first of all, he gets enough people paying him eight pounds a month. After a while, it's going to be serious money, right? Yep. But then secondly, like you said, they're now aware of this person so that when something happens, they're going to go to him for any need that they might have. And then thirdly, that plumber now has a client base that he can market to all kinds of services. So when you're talking about preventative type of things that you can see, mm-hmm. he now can market to them. So in, in many ways, that recurring revenue, that membership actually pays for his marketing. 100%. And that little $10, $10 a month going out of the account is a constant reminder that business exists. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. And it's and it's a sellable asset to come back to what we said at the, at the beginning. Is Absolutely. You think about, I mean, and, and really we got to hit on that because let's say now he decides I'm going to sell my business to another plumber, mm-hmm. right? In the old days, it was maybe just a list of people and some equipment. Now he's given cash flow. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's real. That's a real asset that's going to make that far more valuable than any other plumbing business that's out there. So whether it, whether you're, you're a plumber, whether you, heck, whether you're a psychiatrist, it doesn't matter. There's a level of recurring revenue. In fact, lawyers here in the U.S., it always amazes me how lawyers don't understand this. Uh, estate planning attorneys, for example, they'll always talk about the fact that their clients aren't, aren't uh, re or revising their estate plan as, as their life changes. I'm like, well, why don't you have a system where they pay you every month and in return for that, they get an annual meeting where it gets revised. Well, you know what they say? Oh, cause we just don't do it that way. Well, that's, you're going to, that, that's where Darwin's going to get you in the end because he's only going to serve the one who does do it that way. So really interesting. You mentioned that because we interviewed a chap from a company called trust and will uh, and what they have is a subscription model where you you pay for your your trust, and it's an annual, and it gets you one change to it annually, and then additional changes you pay, and it just keeps them on this recurring model. It's great. It, it's uh, it's where it's moving to, and I guess it's it's where I want to move this conversation to because I want to talk about your progression as a, as an entrepreneur through to yeah. a systemized business owner, and then through to from doing a service-based business to a, a productized service business. Could you just share the journey yeah. that you've been on and what you guys do today? Because I think there's some key learnings from people swapping time for money to becoming more of an information um, authority business. Right. Well, when I, when I got out of college, I, I worked for an insurance company because quite frankly, I didn't know what I was going to do. And the next thing I knew, 10 years had passed. And having worked through the insurance company and financial services, 
at that point, I knew I couldn't work for another person for again. It had been 10 long years, and it was time for me to break out. Um, I started observing the way other financial planning offices were operating. And again, taking kind of the Gerber idea, because I read his book before I even did this, I started seeing some serious flaws in how they were doing things. And that gave me actually a lot of confidence to going out and doing it on my own. So I did that. It would have been in the, uh, the mid-90s, and I started my planning firm. And I had a very systematized approach to marketing. I had a very systematized approach to selling um, and the overall types of services that we were going to provide clients. They were going to be a little bit more on the expensive side. Um, I wasn't going to be an advisor for just anybody. And even though I think in early on that maybe slowed me down as far as getting revenue in, as I look back years later, uh, and the, the thing too is I always required recurring revenue with anybody I work with, that was huge. Having done that for a little over 20 years at that point, I had a lot of other advisors seek me out for advice on how I do things. And that's when I realized, okay, there's an information marketing business here that we can provide. So I don't like to use the word coaching because I, I, I think what we do is more implementation than, than actually coaching. But we created Advisor Architect as a way to help advisors build a practice that they've always wanted by using seven distinct systems. And I take every advisor through those systems. And by the end of a year working with me, they, they have the ability to let that business run independently of themselves, just like I've done. Dan, can we talk about how, mm -hmm. um, I guess, someone listening to this right now, they're probably thinking, okay, so I've been running my business or I've been in my um, industry for X amount of time. I've got all these processes that work for me. I want to package that up yeah. uh, and then help other people. What were the first steps you took? How did you end up with those seven processes or those seven steps? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it did take a little bit of sitting back because sometimes as you're creating these systems, you don't really think about them in terms of, okay, how distinct is that from the other? But um, after looking at the business from a 10,000 foot level, if you will, um, it was pretty clear we were doing, they fell into certain categories. So the first, the first system was metrics. Um, I've always been a numbers person and I study the number of the, the numbers of the business in two ways. I look at where the money's going, how are we to plan? And then secondly, I look at the marketing metrics very carefully. How much does it cost to get a client and what marketing system works best? Now, again, that tracking of, of measurement, something so many businesses don't do, mm -hmm. that was one system. The second system was profitability. Um, how do I make sure that as I, as I build this out, that I actually have a system where my profitability comes first? The third system was marketing. Everybody has a marketing system, but notice I didn't put marketing first. Too many people do that. Uh, you can't do that until you get the numbers part done. The fourth system is selling, different from marketing. It's a real weakness of a lot of advisors and a lot of other business people. They don't really understand how modern day selling works because people can get almost anything that they want without you. Mm -hmm. They can get on their computer. There has to be a higher reason for them to hire you and you should only work with those people who have that higher reason. Then system five is automation. I started looking at what we were doing Back then, we were probably one of the first advisory firms to use Infusionsoft. Now there's a lot of imitators to Infusionsoft. But that was huge in terms of how I could communicate to people and not have to bring on a whole lot of staff. And then the last two systems, I started looking at what we were doing with client retention. Uh, what do we do in A, to keep our clients? And then B, what are we doing to get the children of our clients to become clients so that when mom and dad pass, we still manage the assets? So those were things we were doing. And as I just kind of looked at them, I said, okay, fine. 
these are the categories. And then what I did is I spent time literally writing it down in first in workbook format and then in video format. Hmm. And then back then I didn't even, it was kind of scary. I didn't even know what I didn't know. And it really wasn't all that long ago, five, six years ago, but you know, I was actually hiring a computer programmer to build out the platform, completely unaware that things like Kajabi and Thinkific, Teachable, teachable exist. Didn't even know they existed. <laughs> well, someday someone said, you know, you can do that for $99 a month. And I'm paying thousands of dollars to a guy figuring it, figuring out how to do it on, on, with, the, with the website. Like, you're kidding me, right? Oh, yeah, now they'll do the billing and all that stuff. And it's free to a large extent. Um, and that was really the, the, the genesis. Now, when I look at what the initial product was, because it's kind of funny, I originally thought I was going to have manuals and, 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 and DVDs and CDs, which just added to cost. And so I kind of figured out the, auto, uh, the other part. It became a lot easier to do. And here's the thing I always encourage people. You know, granted, you may not be able to charge a lot, but if, you've, if you come up with the most simplistic of, of an information um, course program and how to do things and you use your expertise, there's a market for that. So whether it be like the, the plumber who's, who's charging $8 a month, there's a market for other people to learn how to do that. You know, how does that look? What do you say? What do you provide, et cetera? And then you just enhance it. So over time, as we've made our products better, the people who bought in in the past, they don't have to pay for those enhancements. But the new people, they pay more. Well, it's a better product than it is now. Um, the one thing I would say, you know, for anyone out there, um, you know, become a reader of Dan Kennedy. Um, his books about marketing and about information marketing are huge. Uh, we almost lost him last year. His health isn't all that great, isn't too good, but read his books. They're great. Uh, they've been a big step towards me. His, his, um, his, old, his company, which he doesn't run anymore, Magnetic Marketing, was a big help in that area too because they bring, they bring information marketers from around the world together at least twice a year, or at least we used to do that when we could get together. So, Dan, there's, there's a whole host of different things I want to unpack, but I also want to respect your time. Yeah, that's fine. What is the, what are the, key one, two, three bits of advice that you can leave our audience with from a going from a service-based business into an information-based business? What are the key challenges, pain points, um, bits of information that you can probably just solve a couple of the mistakes that you might have made? So our listeners yeah. don't need to make them too. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing you got to do is you got to focus on building your list. Um, you know, it's one thing to say you've got this great mousetrap, but if you don't have people that are interested in mousetraps, you're going to have a problem. Mm -hmm. So what you need to do first is I did, as I wrote a book and it wasn't a great book, it was a hundred page book. It was nothing more than a, um, a lead magnet, if you will. It was a sales letter inside the copy of a book, but it's so easy to do. Um, you know, we use Kindle publishing. It's just in time printing $2 and 10 cents to, to print it. And so what I just started to do is I wasn't, I never used social media, which I think is one of the mistakes people do for the end result. I used it for the lead magnet. So when people ordered the book, I actually called it a kit, the profitable uh, profit creation toolkit is what it's called. And it allowed me to, to build a list of people because everybody likes free stuff. Financial advisors particularly like free stuff. And so they're, they're ordering that book. And then from there, I basically started building my list because at least they've identified themselves as financial advisors. And, and if, if I wrote the book in a way that spoke to them, which they all said it did, they were like, man, you, the way you wrote this, it was like you were describing my practice. Well, I, that was me. I had the same practice that they had. So the first thing I'd say is create, create, that, create that lead magnet. 
Um, now, number two, I would say is, is do have a vision as far as what it is you're wanting to provide. Now, really where the money is, so to speak, is in the, uh, the mentoring or the coaching, if you will. So if you can create a system whereby people pay monthly and in return for that, they have access to you, um, that is really where the money is going to be. You don't want to just be creating products that someone can pay for once and then be done. Dan, I, can, um, I, I just want to jump in there because I think it's a great bit of advice, but I, I know from speaking to many people, mm-hmm. they undervalue their time and expertise because they go, yeah. well, everyone knows this, but they don't. <laughs> it's because they don't. Of the, how, how did you end up pricing or what were the pricing yeah. exercises you went yeah. through to price your time? Yeah, I, I wish I could tell you that it was very sophisticated, but here's <laughs> what I did. So I started off, for, first thing I did do is I looked at what some of my competitors were doing. Because uh, you always have competitors out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I initially went to 13 friends and I said, okay, it's going to be $5,000. Uh, if you want in now, fine, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to go up. And they were all quick to buy. And then I just kept increasing the price. So when I took it beyond those 13, I priced it at 10. And I did it in monthly installments. So, um, and, then, and then I just kept raising it. So like right now, it's up to $24,000. So basically, it's $2,000 a month. And then there's a year, that's the year one program. And then we have year two. But with every program I did, I started low enough that price wouldn't be an issue. And then I started raising it as I started increasing the value of the product. So one of the things I did is is a subscription newsletter. Uh, All the people went to my program. They were more than willing to pay me another $47 a month for a subscription newsletter. Did it. Now it's up to $76 a month. Um, I have a product where we provide done for you emails and videos that you can nurture your prospects with. I started that at $97 a month. It's now $147 a month. Now, I never charge, I never raise the price of the original buyers. Once you bought in, you were locked in. Grandfather. Um, right. And really, once you announce there's a price increase, you'd be amazed how quickly your, your list will move to avoid the price increase. As well as if it's genuine, because you see so many yeah. spammy marketers say, only sure. two days left of this, but that sale yeah, you lasts have, for a year. Yeah, you have to hold to it. So you take, for example, this, this nurture system that, that we created. Um, the content creation to do that on a monthly basis is about $3,000. So for me to bring in people at $97 a month or $147, you know, I was only going to have to bring in that many people in order to, to cover that price. So I, my attitude was, let's first get people in the system, but let's make it a realistic number so we can cover costs. I didn't want to lose money from day one on any of these new products, mm-hmm. but there is a little bit of trial and error that goes along with it. Um, I, you know, I, I don't have a degree in cost accounting where I can say this is really what it's worth. Um, but I will tell you this, if you can create a cost of disassociation with your product, so in other words, if you leave me, you're going to lose this, that, and the other thing that's when you have the ultimate business. So I'll give you a great example. Uh, Let's take Infusionsoft. One of the things that we do in our business is we actually, our system number five, is we actually create, using an outside vendor, their campaigns for them. And if they leave us, they're going to lose those campaigns. So that becomes a real, that's a cost of disassociation that goes along with it. And as a result, we have a much higher retention level than Mm -hmm. other practices where, you know, once you get the book, you have everything that you need. 
it's not going to work that way with, with our program. So it's little tweaks along those ways that you can do. But, you know, just always be looking to, to raise the price. Be looking to add value because, quite frankly, if you, um, if you don't, um, you're going to find it hard to maintain that level of profitability going forward. And I think it's top advice. And I think one of the key takeaways for me there is keep raising the price until the market yeah. says no. Yeah, target um, says that's, no. That's, that's the only way you can do it. Dan, I've thoroughly enjoyed this. Uh, and I can imagine a lot of our listeners have taken some key things away there, all about talking about systems, profit first, uh, and authority information marketing. It's something that we're looking at as a business right now. So we just, we just launched um, a couple of different products and services, and we are building the value chain right now in our business. Um, Dan, if people want to learn more about you, what's the best yeah. place for them to go and discover more about what you're talking about? Yeah, the best place to go is dancapril.com. So my last name is C-U-P-R-I-L-L. And if you do that, um, you're going to subscribe to my almost daily email where I provide business tips. I say almost because sometimes <laughs> I take days off. Um, but you're also going to get a free copy of my subscription-based newsletter. So even if you're not in financial services, I think you're going to find that the, the lessons that are taught in this newsletter um, are going to be immediately applicable to your business because in reality, there's a, there's a tendency for business owners to think my business is different. If you can get over that, I have learned so much more about success in running a business from other businesses outside my industry than I ever learned within my industry. So, you know, cast a wide net when it comes to learning. But dancapril.com is probably the best place to start. And then from there, we'll send you all kinds of information. Dan, I've had an absolute blast. Stay well. Thanks for your time today. Adam, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.